the other thing with technology is that data comes with that as well. And when we're talking about climate change, we need to be able to measure and monitor the impact so that we know what's working, we know what's not working, we know where the greatest impacts are happening or, or, or things are happening or even phenomenon happening that we, we can't quite grasp why that's the case. But if we've got the data, then we can really look at it after we've analysed it and all those type of things. Welcome to the smart community, smart regions, smart towns and smart cities. It's where we live, work and play with smart communities. The future starts today. Big data, smart mobility, emerging trends galore. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for. Hi, Smart Community friends, and welcome to the Smart Community Podcast. I'm not Zoe. I'm Ellen Ronalds Keane, but Zoe is here with me. Hi, Zoe. Hi, Ellen. It is episode 250, which is a huge milestone. So we're doing a very special episode, another Ask Zoe Anything, featuring a bunch of your listener questions that we have gathered mainly from LinkedIn. Um, If you're not following Zoe and the Smart Community Podcast on LinkedIn, then I highly recommend come on over and connect So we're going to start off with the question that I think is the most important because it's my question. Zoe, what is your all-time favourite street sign? Great question, Ellen. I thought so. Just very important as well. Um, For those of you who don't know, maybe you haven't listened to a couple of episodes of the podcast, I love street signs. It's my... It's my like hidden secret that I don't tell everybody, except when you have a podcast, you have no secrets. So... My all-time favorite street sign. Now, I have one in particular that was uh, in Mexico City when I was there on my Churchill Fellowship. Now, it was some kind of hazard sign that I couldn't actually read it, one, because I don't speak Spanish, but also it just had so many stickers on it, you couldn't even tell what it said. So even if I was supposed to be looking out for something, I would have no idea what I was looking out for. That's a very specific sign and a unique, one-of-a-kind sign. Now, my general favorite sign is the road slippery sign which because the wheel tracks on that sign make absolutely no sense the car would have to be lifting wheels to be able to do what it says it's yeah they like cross over (laughs) they cross over right so it's just beyond ridiculous and it's been in you know production for many many a year and nobody has thought that that is crazy so it is my favorite sign good one i like that i i think i've told you this before i like stop signs because i do like octagons. I don't think we have enough octagons in our life. I I agree with you. Yep. Yeah. 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 Anyway, on to the real question. I mean, that's a real question, but you know, the questions from people who are not your podcast producer and friend. <laughs> so this one comes from Mark Thomas, who's been on the podcast twice now, I think. Yes. We will actually, a lot of the, the questions that come from former guests. So we will make sure in the show notes that we put the episode numbers that they were guests on the show. So you can go away and Catch up on those if you missed them. But Mark Thomas says, what are the most impactful smart steps you're seeing cities take on an appropriate city-level action on the impacts of climate change? Good question. Such a good question. And I don't want to say it's topical because that's not enough emphasis or that's, do you know what I mean? It's just, it's very important, right? There's not enough importance on it. So to answer this question, it is declaring a climate emergency, right? Which is not necessarily a smart thing in inverted commas. But what it means is when you do that, you can really focus in 
on what it is that we need to do at a city level and and also you know at a country level but even at a community level now when they are able to do that and then have the appropriate focus of you know policy and action then you can bring that thinking into the smart cities and smart communities the things that we're developing and i i say that because we talk a lot about smart cities well i talk about smart cities and smart communities being just you know sexy sustainability because we need to bring in that technology to this conversation now there's a couple of things where if we implement it into uh i guess it's business as usual as in when we're talking about smart cities smart communities we've got a strategy maybe we've got an action plan maybe we've got a framework we need to bring the sustainability focus in there bring that you know climate emergency in there what are the things we're going to do to really address that because it's a huge pain point and we know that smart communities are all about solving pain points and some are really small and some are huge global problems but some are or all of them are all of them start by identifying what that is but then taking steps the right steps in the right direction to be able to try and solve that now the other thing we need to consider is when we are talking about technology that there's i guess whole of life issues or a life cycle of technology that we need to think about uh, and you know this is again about using our resources more effectively so if we're just going to install technology for the sake of it then we have to update it again you know in the next even one one year five years two years whatever it is even even 20 years we really need to think about what is the life cycle of that technology what is the end of life of that technology look like and can we make sure that when we're thinking about and we might not have all the answers but thinking about battery technology for example thinking about you know the sensors and all that type of stuff when it does finish its life its uh initial life what is it going to be next what is it going to form into? Because that has to be part of this conversation. You know, the circular economy is, is a huge part of this conversation and which, you know, we've had a number of guests on the podcast to talk about the circular economy and how that can be included. Now, so we have to think about that technology. Now, the other thing with technology is that data comes with that as well. And when we're talking about climate change, we need to be able to measure and monitor the impact so that we know what's working, we know what's not working, we know where the greatest impacts are happening or, or, or things are happening or even um, you know, phenomenon happening that we, we can't quite grasp why that's the case. But if we've got the data, then we can really look at it after we've analyzed it and all those type of things. Now, the other thing is, if we say we're serious about reducing our emissions, we need to be able to measure that we are actually doing that. And we need to be able to use that data effectively to be able to report on that and to even have a look at what type of interventions that we've done. And then we can look at what happened in the data. So measuring and monitoring the impacts and reaching our targets and achieving those and saying that we are actually doing that and it's based on evidence is also a really key part of that city level action that Mark's talking about there. Mm, cool. And the first step, as you said, you got to declare a climate emergency because you have to acknowledge the problem before we can start to solve it. Yeah, yeah. And, and you know, we're talking about climate change. That's a huge thing, obviously global problem. But the same concept or the same thinking then starts with, you know, starting any type of problem. You need to acknowledge that it's a problem 
so then we can have the appropriate focus because we know that there's so many things that we could be doing. We can't do everything at once. So if we really identify or declare that this is a really big issue that we care about and that we need to care about, then we can start taking the appropriate steps. Yeah. And it focuses the resources. Exactly. Exactly. Cool. So next question comes from Cornelia Levy-Bensherton, who was also on the podcast. And she writes, like a university or a college campus is kind of like a mini city already. So do you have any thoughts on bringing academia into a wider urban community and making, you know, internships and partnerships with the local governments or any anything else and therefore spreading the smart city word to the college and university campus arena? Thanks so much for your question, Cornelia. And um, it's great to see you on LinkedIn. And we have had you on the podcast, I think just once, but um, we'll have to have another conversation soon. So for this precinct planning, which is what Cornelia is talking about here. So I think of a campus as a precinct is so important in this space. And we're seeing more and more of that here. I've, I've been working on a couple of uh, different smart precincts, which include a campus because they are, they're like a mini city. And, you know, some cities are a lot, probably a lot of cities actually are built around uh, this community, which is the university or the college or the campus. We know that academia is so key in this smart space. We know that education is so important in this space and that's all levels of education. So we can get more people thinking at, thinking about this at, at an earlier age, but also that we can continue the research and work out what's possible and what's not possible in this space. Now, there's a, a number of different initiatives that I'm seeing, I guess, around the world, but particularly in Australia where I am, where they're really trying to embed this uh, kind of smart precinct digital layer or just layer from the very beginning, which is really exciting. It's not something that they are tacking on later on. And in that, one of the biggest things that we've realized or, or that we know is that it's about governance, right? And I'll talk about governance in a lot of these questions. It's kind of my favorite thing to talk about because it's so important and smart communities actually really need this transformation to happen and as in the transformation of governance, as in how things are actually going to happen, who's responsible for what, who's accountable for what, who's going to who's going to do what, and who's going to be able to make decisions about what we do with data and technology and all those type of things. But going back to this question, that layer is really important, particularly when you've got partnerships, you've got local government, you've got academia, you've got state government, you've got private sector, all which work very, 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 very differently. But we know that they need to work together if we are going to create these smart communities. And whether they're going to be, and also, you know, starting at these uh, mini cities, which are university campuses and that type of thing. So when we're doing, it's not a list of technology. It's not like, okay, cool, here's your smart precinct. Okay, you, you've ticked off that you've got, you know, smart bins and you've got poles like smart poles and you've got this that and the other and you've got these type of applications it really again comes down to what the vision is and then what are the things that we're trying to solve so for the university what are some of their biggest pain points that you know a traditional university has and these things might be things that they've had for years and years and years and thought that there's no solution this is just the way it happens to be and this is the way it is but if we can start bringing in different thinking, maybe it's school students that might have some thoughts about that. Maybe it's people from the local government because, you know, they deal with all sorts of different problems. 
that maybe they think about it in a different way or maybe they've come up with a solution that really works. And also then, you know, we've got these really smart people sitting in universities that, you know, maybe they have really niche um, skill sets in, in a certain thing and maybe that can help us with some of these problems. Or maybe they know somebody uh, in another university all around the world because we know that connection, that global connection is really important that we can then start to think about things a bit differently. And then we also know that advancements in technology and data and things that can be tried and tested, we know that the university is really a really, uh, I guess, a test bed or can be a test bed or a place where innovation really happens at a, you know, at a, at a quite a, can be a quite a large scale because, you know, that's the whole purpose to bring new knowledge and, and build new knowledge, right? So yeah, I think it's it's really key and I think we'll see more and more of it and we are starting to see that approach happen, uh, well, particularly in Australia, but I know that in the US as well, uh, they're starting to do that and I mean, all around the world really. And we know right now that universities are hurting with COVID and the pandemic, but I think, you know, once we are able to uh, move through this, whatever that looks like, and we can start really focusing in on well, what are those smart things that we need to really recover from the hurt that's happened around the world. Yeah, definitely. Good question, Cornelia. Thank you. So the next question comes from Jonathan Reichenthal, who has been on the podcast before and I believe is the guest next week as well. And he says, what are some best practices for smart communities to tell their good news stories? Yes, thank you, Jonathan. Now, I have said here that should just come on to the Smart Community Podcast. Yeah, absolutely. Reach out if you've got a good news story. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's a little bit of, you know, a little bit of jest, but actually... But also true. But also true. I particularly like, I guess, local governments or people working in all different governments or they've got projects happening. We'd love to hear those stories and our audience absolutely thrives on them as well. So do reach out to us. But other than just us, obviously... um. There's a whole bunch of other podcasts out there that might not be smart city related, but maybe they were related to cities. Maybe they're related to technology or communities or engagement or so many different things, right? Get on those. Like we want more people telling their stories in ways that aren't just formal, uh, you know, articles, which are also great as well. But I really think that we want to spread it out into the community as much as possible so that it's not just a oh, well, I'm a smart community professional, so I read these things and I am involved in this conversation. We want it. We want other people to be talking about it, right? People that aren't in this space. So I think get on as many different media as possible and you don't need to necessarily, what's the word? Yeah, have something super formal all the time. It's a real, I, th I think a mix is really important. So maybe you get into your local newspaper and celebrate some of these things because some of them are going to be really small and maybe, you know, maybe you'll get a bit of flack about, you know, oh, who cares about this, but it gets in people's minds then and go, oh, actually, yeah, our council did, you know, implement this thing. And, oh, maybe if they thought that was cool, maybe they'll think this is cool and I have this really great idea. So it really, you know, is this catalyst to really get people thinking about things differently. And I mean, even, you know, I just got a message on LinkedIn the other day from a, a lady in, in London saying that she'd been listening to the podcast for 18 months and I don't know which particular episode it was, but maybe it was Jack Barton's episode. I'm not sure. But uh, she said that she, after listening to the podcast for that long, it inspired her to go and do a master's of spatial data science. 
And even though she wasn't you know, super technical or into data, she went and did that. And she sent me a message to say that she's just about to start her new job in renewable energy in this space. So I'm just like, and you know, that's somebody that I, I don't know, but we were able to just get her thinking a bit differently, right? You know, we didn't do anything special to kind of go, oh, you must do this or that. And I think that's the power of telling your story because then others go, oh, okay, if they can do that and, you know, and who knows what it was in particular that was said, you won't know that. But if you continue to tell your story, it gets out there and people then can take what they need from it and then share that in their own special way. Yeah, absolutely. It plants seeds in people's minds that then they, you know, because I love that story and that's, you know, I love podcasts. And so that's one of the things I love about podcasts too, is that just that kind of telling of stories puts it as a possibility in people's mind. And I know you talk about, you know, like possible brain theory and like just having people aware of, oh, this could be possible for me. I'd never considered it before. But, you know, I've heard this story and this story and this story, and they don't necessarily, the the particulars of the story don't necessarily apply to me, but the theme or the underlying approach that the person took has inspired me in some way to then go, what might be possible for me? And I absolutely think that's the case with on the city level too. So, and, you know, moving beyond just the traditional press release to the local newspaper and then that's it. I love your point about getting on as much media as possible. Mm-hmm. I mean, honestly, like, I think about me starting the podcast, you were one of my biggest inspirations, right? And your podcast is nothing about cities. It's about, you know, teachers and, and well-being and, and self-care. And it's not necessarily a topic, but I would listen to it all. It's not necessarily a topic that, you know, really resonated with me, but I would listen to it all the time, one, because it was you. But two, then I would I would go, oh, okay, this is possible. And that you you can have a podcast and that these stories no matter what context they are really are important and i could do the same for smart cities and communities absolutely absolutely so maybe cities could start podcasts that would be cool totally and we yeah we can totally help you do that too yeah yeah great question so the next one is from mike barlow and it's a it's a pretty long question so and mike's also been on the podcast he was actually a him and Cornelia were on an episode together because they've written a book together. So Mike says, when I speak with an audience about smart cities, people always ask about surveillance and privacy and their questions usually spark a really healthy conversation, but they rarely seem to acknowledge their responsibility as citizens to confront their local governments and negotiate directly with their elected officials. That's the part that worries me. People seem to have forgotten how to argue constructively. So there's a sense of engagement that's often missing. So Mike's question is, what can we do to encourage citizens to participate more fully in the decision-making processes? Great question, Mike. And Mike has his own podcast too, actually. And I happen to be the intro and the outro for it, which is all about writing and communication, which is awesome. But enough about me. Now, this question is really interesting because... The way that I read it initially was about uh, talking about trust and trust with government and, you know, between the community and, uh, you know, the elected officials, et cetera, et cetera. But actually reading it again, Mike's here talking about how do we encourage citizens. I actually think we do need to flip it back and as governments or as people responsible for our communities, we need to think about, well, if our citizens are not feeling comfortable to talk to us, what are we going to do differently to build that trust with them again? 
we're in a really weird time right now all around the world and it's not going to be solved overnight but i think we need to flip our thinking here and it's like what why how have we got to this place where we have this low levels of trust and there's so many different factors and it's so complex and it's you know not necessarily just about technology but technology has played a huge part in this both on the positive side and the negative side right and tech and data and you know mike's talking about privacy and surveillance and security here and we had a really interesting conversation with niels welters last week sorry i had a conversation with him a couple weeks ago but his episode i think will have come out last week is that correct yep yeah that's correct so Neil's episode last week is all about this. You know, some countries are looking at increasing facial recognition. Others are looking at scaling it back. So we need to start having these conversations. And then we can decide in our communities, what is it that we want? Now, fortunately, um, in Australia, you know, we have a democracy, so we can, we are set up to be able to have these conversations, but we realize that that's not the case all around the world. But if we continue to have these conversations and start and keep pushing that agenda in a way that is still, I guess, thinking about solving pain points and thinking about what's best for our communities, I think we can start to shift that needle. But it's so complex and it's really, it's not a quick fix, not one size fits all, all the, all those, all those terms. But I do think we could, we need to flip it to think, well, if I am a, even if not government necessarily, but definitely local government, definitely the the people that are you know custodians of our of our communities, right? Even community leaders, if people aren't feeling comfortable to you know have these conversations and negotiate, what is it that I can do differently? And I think the polarization uh, that has occurred in the last probably five years or so, or maybe more, doesn't help us at all. And so, how do we get to a place where we can actually start to have these debates again that aren't about your left and I'm right, but actually what is it in the middle and, and what things do we have? Because there's lots of common threads. What do we agree on, right? There's lots of things we have in common with people that are complete opposite spectrum, but we, we get there different ways. And can we have those conversations about how we get there in different ways rather than the be all and end all and the final destination? I think that's really key. Mm-hmm. It's a big one and it's a tough one, isn't it? It is. And, you know, I think also we need to listen to the the people that are, you know, in this space of, you know, social justice and all these type of things. We need to bring them into the smart community conversation as well, right? We need them around the table. We need, we also need the voices of the people that are going to be most affected around the table, but we need to build trust with them so they feel it's a safe space to be able to do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So our next question comes from Georgia Ether, who happens to be related to you. And Georgia asks, what smart community strategies or quick wins should governments implement to help combat climate change, especially given the recent IPCC report that was released late July, early August 2021? Great question, Georgia. And again, climate change is a huge theme. I think it's very similar to what we answered earlier with Mark was to declare that climate change is an emergency and that it's a real focus and we want to do something about it that it's not a, a debate anymore on if it's happening or not happening, but what can we do to address it? So I don't know about quick wins, but I do think uh, as in, you know, it's going to be a long-term game, but I do think that there's just increasing that focus in all areas, right? It's not just one, it's not just, you know, the local city, it's not just the transport sector, it's not just industry, it's not just, you know, academia. 
we actually all need to come together, which, you know, is very much a smart community concept, which is bringing all the people around the table to be able to have these multidisciplinary conversations. And because it's not going to be, it's not going to be one technology that's going to solve it. It's not going to be one new concept that's going to solve it. It's going to be so many different things. Uh, and it will look so different in different countries and different, you know, regions and different communities. But the focus that we really think this is a big problem that we want to solve is really key. Yeah. Good question, Georgia. Thank you. Our next question comes from Kari Sutton. And actually, Kari has two questions. But the first question is, how accessible is the technology used in smart cities? We must be cognizant of any financial, physical and demographic barriers to their adoption. Can it accommodate users that face challenges interacting with technology? Is it affordable? We need smart city technology that supports individual and community resilience and well-being. Yes, this is very, very important. And sometimes I think this is missed because we we think, oh, well, what's our typical user group? Now, I often talk about this in the context of that digital divide and something that Carrie and I have talked about as well. Hi, Carrie. Great to see you. Great to have you on the podcast. And thanks for your question. But Carrie works in building a mentally fit generation, right? So the next generation to build resilience in children. Uh, And so having conversations with Carrie about this particular topic is really informative for me as well, because again, we need different people's brains working on this particular topic because it's so big. And we know during the pandemic, it just got even bigger, even greater and potentially not acknowledged as much as it really should have been. I think it did early on. But now, you know, I, I know I talked to um, Kim Horton on the podcast, uh, you know, during the pandemic, and he uh, is very uh, focused on regional uh, areas and regional development. And, you know, one school to the other in the same region, one had good internet or the, you know, the community had good internet, but the other one didn't. So they, com- they had completely different experiences in how they could then actually, you know, participate in education. And I think that's a really, really important issue and something that we're going to feel for many years to come. Because not just because of the pandemic, but it's heightened it even further. And certain demographics slip through the, the cracks because we haven't thought about this. So that's just, you know, reiterating the problem there. When we are starting to talk about, you know, the different technologies in smart cities and communities, we really need to then think, well, okay, this technology will work for this demographic, but what are the other channels that we need to have available for people that maybe can't use the technology? Or is it a, an uplift that we need? Is it digital literacy? Is it a, and it's digital literacy, but also device, you know, um, not everyone can use the same device. Uh, and that's okay, but what other devices can they connect in with? So just mapping that out and starting to think about that, bringing the user groups on the journey and bringing the experts in this accessible space is really, really key. Having some conversations with Chad Remage, I just love talking to Chad. He's been on the podcast twice now, and all about accessibility. I know that's not exactly this, this same topic, but being able to think about it a bit differently and then be able to share that information with people then gets people, like we were talking about earlier, planting those seeds to, oh, okay, this makes sense now. I hadn't had to think about this before in this way. So if we can bring that same thinking into this accessible component of technology, then hopefully we can come up with some better solutions uh, moving forward. Mm. And it is a 
it is a, a really important topic because I think it's one that, as you said, is only going to get uh, increasingly uh, visible with the fallout from the pandemic. Absolutely, absolutely. So Carrie's other question is, she says, I have questions around security and privacy. I want to know that the tech is secure and that hackers can't shut down an entire city because there are flaws in the technology. And she does say she apologizes if this is a crazy idea, but it's not a crazy idea, is it? No. And she goes on to say, I want to ensure that our privacy as individual citizens is protected. What are they collecting the data for? How is it being used? How is it being stored, et cetera? Yes, another great question um, and not a crazy idea at all. And again, it's all about setting up the data governance. So who is going to be responsible for what? Why are we collecting the data? Asking all these questions early, not, oh, look, we've put some sensors out. Oh, it seems to be collecting this type of data. I wonder what we could use that for. That's not the way that we need to do it. And we need to really bake in the privacy and privacy and security, I guess, are two different things as well. So we just need to be aware of that, that we bake in those things from the very, very beginning. So we want things to be secure. Even if they are secure, it doesn't necessarily mean that our privacy will be protected. So there's two different things and we need to make sure that we are thinking about those things in two different ways and also different professionals are involved in in those two areas, right? Making those things in from the very beginning. And, you know, I've had uh, privacy professionals and security professionals on the podcast uh, recently and from the very beginning. People who come to mind, Debbie Reynolds um, and Nicole Stevenson. And recently I just had uh, David Jacobs on. But I mentioned them because these are the people that we want to have at the start of our projects to really think about the privacy impact statements, or the how that will actually work. And there are certain laws in all different countries that we need to follow. So it's not something that's like, oh, this would be a good idea to be private. No, it's a, it's a legal requirement. However, we know that technology moves so rapidly. So we need to make sure that it's not just legal but it's also ethical and so then we start to have those conversations at the very very beginning and i know that you know what are we collecting this data for and we have said on the podcast a number of times that you might be able to pick up different insights with data you might be able to think about you know oh we've got this data for this purpose can we use it for another purpose but we really need to think about those things particularly when we're talking about private personal data whether that's ethical to do so and whether we actually can do that. So there's a number of different questions. That's a really huge one. I can't, you know, obviously answer everything now, but bringing in those professionals, multidisciplinary approach, which broken record, but it's so important. So then we can start having those conversations really, really early before it's an issue, before it's, and I think Nicole Stevenson said, or, or she had someone on her podcast, you can't put the toothpaste back in the tube once it's out. So, or it's very difficult to do so. So start to think about those things when we've still got the cap on the tube of toothpaste. I like that analogy. It's a good one. <laughs> Wouldn't have thought I'd be talking about toothpaste on my Community Podcast, but here we are. Here we are. <laughs> so the next question is from Gaia Gaunter. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. And Gaia asks, what is the best way to bring design thinking into an organization to uplift the culture of innovation? Love this question. Thank you, Gaia. So again, a lot of uh, parallels are drawn from design thinking process to smart communities, right? It's about fully understanding the problem first and then exploring a wide range of possible solutions. So these might be technology, these might be new ways of thinking, different communication methodologies, different you know data that's available, et cetera, et cetera. And then actually using an iterative approach to test and prototype and that type of thing. Now, 
that's not necessarily to say we need another pilot or that we're testing technology, but we may be testing a new process. And maybe that process then goes into full scale without having to, I guess, I'm just thinking about, you know, we're not talking about breaking things or like a, you know, we talk a lot about startups using this prototyping methodology and we think more about physical things, but you can prototype a number of different things, services, um, ways of doing things. But then thinking about, well, if this does work, can we scale this? That's important to think about at the early stages. So then when we go, oh, it does work, but we don't know how to scale it or it's actually, oh, actually, no, we can't scale it because we don't know who's going to be responsible for what, or we'll try and scale it, but we don't have the governance set up or whatever. That's really key. And then you can start thinking about, well, if we are going to then yeah, scale this, um, how do we actually do that? So I think it very much sits in the realms of smart communities. But as I said, it's actually about setting up that governance first so then we can embed it in. So I think lots of parallels when we're setting up, you know, thinking about design thinking and setting up our smart communities and bringing in our strategies and processes. But then how do we set up the governance to allow us to embed that into business as usual once we've been able to fully understand our problem, look at a wide range of solutions and then have an iterative approach to start trying to solve some of these things. Hmm. Yeah, cool. The next question comes from Venkatesh Gopal and Venkatesh asks, what would it take for every major city to put down an ultra low emission zone in its center at least? And why are ultra low emission zones only limited to air pollution? For example, vehicle noise is a big problem, hindering the smart livable city dream. Thank you. These are great questions. And I think thinking about this and, and the way that I am answering this is about mode shift, right? So we're talking about ultra low emission zones, which you know about vehicles, but actually, yeah, some of those things are like, like we were talking about here is, you know, is it air pollution? Is it noise? And when I was in Barcelona, I asked them, you know, what's one of your biggest pain points? And they said noise, noise pollution, which I thought was really fascinating because it hadn't really come up too much in some of the other cities, but it made sense, right? There's so many people in a short, in a really small area and, you know, noise is a, is a problem, particularly when you're emptying, you know, big garbage bins or, you know, you've got noisy vehicles, mode bikes, et cetera. But what I would say is obviously we can't solve all of this uh, for every major city around the world, but we can start thinking about it and start talking about it is start thinking about the mode shift. Is it that we put ultra low emission zones or is it that we just make places more walkable, cyclable, livable because we think about the people at the center first? Now, you still may need vehicles in there, but maybe it's actually less comfortable for vehicles, more comfortable for people. And, you know, but the vehicles that we need, maybe it is deliveries, but maybe they are electric or maybe they're cargo bikes or whatever the case may be, depending on the city. And if people do have to drive, because we know that some people do have to drive, people with disabilities, for example, so then they can access the things that they need to access. So we need to think about that. So there still may be access, but maybe it's in a different way. I think about this, um, again, Barcelona, uh, one of my favorite places, uh, in their super block theory, it's, it's not that vehicles can't drive, you know, and, and access, uh, the buildings, but it's, you know, 10 kilometers an hour and there's, the pedestrian is the priority. So the person is the, the human um, walking along the street is the priority. And then the vehicles are secondary to that. And in that, you know, they've got, what are they called? Children's playgrounds in the middle of intersections because they've set it up in a way that, you know, they're going 10 kilometers an hour and they're you know going around in a way that 
is safe for everybody and they've got you know shared shared bikes e-bikes um they've got it just looks like a place and feels like a place where humans can walk around rather than an inconvenience on the side of the road uh if that makes sense and so i think it's starting to think about those planning things and not just not just zones but what are the things we can do to make it more comfortable for humans and start to think about the infrastructure that we need to set set this up right and you know that's about walkability and cyclability and green space and the things that humans love but also then we can use data to be able to make some of these decisions uh, which i guess is bringing in that smart community concept and continuing to make it better for humans by getting their feedback uh, and and looping that back in so then we can continue to make these places more accessible, livable and sustainable. Kylie Nixon, who's also been on the show, and Kylie says, how can we better inform, educate and help property owners and developers on the benefits that walking and cycling infrastructure brings to their bottom line? Given that walking and cycling have a strong role in the shape and function of smart communities and cities, especially of low carbon ones, which is obviously a theme we've already touched on, Many property owners and developers are still taking the NIMBY approach, which is that not in my backyard. So how do we better inform, educate and help them to understand it's actually good for their bottom line as well? Thanks, Kylie. And this is a great question to lead on. Now, we do it by making it sexy. So (laughs) including it in all the conversations that we have, to the ones we're having about technology and data, maybe we're having conversations about um, mobility as a service, we actually bring walking and cycling back into those conversations. It's not something like I think sometimes we forget that, you know, these are very good ways to get around if we really focus in and, and make sure that they um, are working for people. And again, talking about making places for humans, but we want to keep talking about them. So when we're talking about autonomous vehicles, OK, well, what does that mean for walking and cycling? And Kylie, I know, has done work on in this space as well, so she's, she's very familiar with it but actually starting to bring the humans back into those technology conversations is so important because we may just be assuming that people are thinking about those different options um, because, you know, it's it's obvious in inverted commas, but it's weird how often we actually forget that these are human elements to the way that we move, to the transport network. Um, and then we're not just like robots kind of, you know, teleporting or floating from here to there, or, you know, how do people actually get to a bus stop is so important, right? Because if you can't get to the bus stop, you can't catch the bus. And it's not necessarily there's anything wrong with the bus or the bus route. It's just that I can't get to the bus stop if it's not accessible and I have other limitations. And I think that's really key. The other one is on this, you know, great point about being low carbon. We are talking a lot about electric vehicles and they're part of the piece, but again, that mode shift, like we were talking about, um, and it's something that I talk a lot about in my Churchill report, which was missing from the conversation. When we talk about smart mobility, it's actually all those things in the middle, all those things in between, you know, the city planning and then the technology, but all those things in between that actually make it work. So before we can have mobility as a service, we need mobility as a system. And the system includes active travel. It includes walking, you know, cycling. It includes new modes like, you know, e-scooters and those type of things as well. But we need to start realizing that these are viable and really important parts of our network system. So then we can actually plan better for our transport system when we are uh, moving through our cities and communities, because we know, well, again, I'm biased. I work in the transport space and I, I love transport. 
but it's the way that we move that really impacts our communities. Like mobility is one of those really key things. And we know that we've, you know, on the podcast, we talk about physical mobility, so being able to get to A to B in 3D in person, but also that digital mobility as well. So how do we make sure we can connect people when they need to be connected and maybe they don't need to travel because uh, for that particular thing and maybe they save their travel for, for another time but they can still connect in with the conversation or connect in with a with a loved one or a work opportunity or education opportunity, et cetera. But then the human connection as well. So if we are walking and cycling, I'm thinking about my time in Amsterdam. I just loved, I just felt so happy and safe with all these bikes just cruising around and then bumping into people and, you know, having a conversation on oh, a nice bike or, or whatever the case may be, which you can't do in cars. And I'm not saying that cars aren't part of the system because they have to be. Our cities at the moment are set up for this, but start to then shift that needle to start thinking about the different ways that we can really, I guess, focus in again, talking about focusing in on that we want these places to be better for walking, better for cycling, better for humans in general. Yeah, absolutely. Well, we have one more question and it's another really important one. This one comes from Oliver Locke who's also been on the podcast, and Oliver says, will there be a new line of smart community mugs released to celebrate the milestone of getting to 250 episodes? Well, 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 what a great question. And the answer just decided this morning is yes, there will be. There will be limited edition 250 episode mugs that will be released very soon. We may have a little competition if anybody is keen for one. But, yes, that's hot off the press. Oh, so they need to be following My Smart Community on LinkedIn to find out updates about this competition, I'm guessing. That's where all the all the fun happens. That's it. Follow us on uh, LinkedIn or Twitter. If you don't have either of those, send me an email and we'll make sure that you can be part of this competition and Smart Community Conversation. Where do they email you? Well, you can email us at hello at mysmart.community. And we will make sure, well, that link's always in the in the description of the episode and in the show notes. And look, Zoe, I want to say well done because 250 podcast episodes is nothing to sneeze at. It's actually a really big deal. Uh, just to put my podcast producer hat on for a second, there's an awful lot of podcasts in the world that have less than seven episodes released. Uh, it's called Podfade. It's a it's a really common thing that people start podcasts and then, you know, don't continue, and they've just got a few episodes that stick around in the in the podcast apps. But uh, people find their podcast and there's only a you know four episodes, and they think, oh, that was really good, but it stopped. Uh, so sticking with podcasting for such a long time uh, is actually a, a big achievement. So I want to say well done. And it's been such a pleasure to be involved since uh, day zero before, you know, when it was just a twinkle in your eye. And thanks for listening, everybody, because it couldn't happen without the listeners. That's that's it. We could, yeah, there's no point in making podcasts if no one's listening to it, is there? Well, I mean, it could be a fun creative project, but it does seem like uh, that's true. half the puzzle is missing. But no, in all seriousness, thank you, Ellen, for being involved. You know, I was going to say day zero, but actually it was day negative uh, 30 or at least uh, something like that because it was very early on uh, when we first had the initial conversation and, you know, months of planning, right? This doesn't happen overnight. Doesn't happen by accident. 
does not happen by accident. So no, thank you for being um, a continued uh, valued member of the Smart Community team. And I'm really looking forward to maybe the next 250 episodes. Here's hoping, hey? Thanks everyone for listening. And as always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. Love it. Thank you for having me on the podcast, Ellen. (laughs) You're welcome. (laughs) Talk soon. Bye. The Smart Community Podcast is brought to you by My Smart Community. If you're trying to deal with disruption, not sure what technologies to buy, need to facilitate genuine collaboration, then we can help. Email hello at mysmart.community or head to www.mysmart.community forward slash consulting. Thanks so much for listening to the Smart Community Podcast. Show notes for this episode and all other episodes are available on our website, mysmart.community slash podcast. If you have any questions for us or any of our guests, you can email hello at mysmart.community. You can also find us on the socials. We are on LinkedIn and Twitter at SmartComHQ. That's com with two M's. If you are enjoying the podcast, please hit subscribe so you never miss an episode. And we would love for you to leave us a rating and review at wherever you listen. This really helps us reach more ears and eyes. So thank you for your support. As always, we hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as we enjoyed making it. The Smart Community Podcast is what you're looking for.